Amen. Thank you, Dan. Well, as we begin, I want to ask you a question, and that is this. Is your wanter broken? Is your wanter broken? Several years ago, I heard a preacher ask that question. What did he mean by that? Is your wanter broken? He was talking about desires. He was talking about the things that we want. In fact, he had, at one time, he brought that up with his children. He told them, he said, your wanters are broken. You don't want enough. Your desires aren't big enough. Now, frankly, I don't remember exactly why he brought that up because, frankly, when I look at that, I think, well, one, a wanter is nothing. It's a made-up word, but we remember it. Maybe he was talking about prayer. Maybe he was talking about a vision for what God would have us do. But as I've been preparing for today, as I've been studying Micah chapter 2, this question and this word that is not a word has been rattling through my brain, is your wanter broken? We could want for things spiritually. We could want for more spiritual impact. We could want for more growth. We could want for more conversions more verses memorized, more prayer, more, more, more. And I think all those are well and good, that is, unless they become idols, as we discussed last week. But if we're honest, and frankly, if I'm honest, sometimes those things, those very good things, don't make it on my wanter list. And and if they do, they don't make it very high on that wanter meter The things that are on my list are things like cars, computers, books, achievement. Unfortunately, my wanter is certainly not broken. I'm so easily distracted by the latest offerings from car manufacturers in Europe and Japan and Detroit and Texas I quickly get lost into daydreaming about what it would be like to drive something efficient or something exotic or something quiet. My wanter is certainly not broken, and that's a problem. How is your wanter? Is it broken? Is it working on overdrive like mine is? In the Ten Commandments, God concluded his brief list of expectations for his people with this simple command in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Don't don't turn there. We're going to be in another book in just a moment. But Exodus 20, 17 says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, we don't often use that word covet or covetousness, which then begs the question, what is covetousness? According to Tyndale's Bible Dictionary, covetousness is the desire to have something for oneself that belongs to another. It's a craving or a passionate desire. It's more than just wanting something. It's wanting something that belongs to someone else. It's one thing for me to want a guitar like Rick's. It's another thing for me to want Rick's guitar and want to be able to play a guitar like him. But there are some other things that we may want. I asked a few people this week, what's on your wanter list? And some people said ease, or at least the perception of ease. Have you ever been to a coffee shop at the wrong time of day and you find it full of people who seem to have nothing to do except for 
drinking coffee. Wouldn't that be nice? It was that way when we visited Europe years ago. They go to bed super late and they wake up late. So at the weird time of day, they're at the coffee shop drinking some espresso and it just seems like life is easy. There are some people who seem to have that kind of life. Or maybe on your wanter list is a greater intelligence. Students, have you ever been jealous of those people who just kind of get grades really easily? It, they don't have to work hard or they get ahead at, the, at work. They, they, don't, they, they just understand things. Man, I listen to preachers. I listen to theologians. I listen to some really smart people on podcasts, and I am so jealous. I'm thinking, how do they keep all that in their brains? How do they learn so much so quickly? How do they read so fast? Oh, that I would have their mind to be able to understand the way that they do. Or maybe on your wanter list is that latest gun or that newfangled hunting gear so that when deer season comes around, they're, at, they're no match for your equipment. Or maybe it's a library. I know Solomon writes, of making of books there is no end, and much study wearies the brain, but man, books and books and books. We could, I would love to have a big library of books bigger than the one I have, and I can't even read all those, which is silly. Now, there are a couple of catechisms that I think are very helpful for us in helping us comprehend and understand the Tenth Commandment. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says this in question 80. It says, what is required in the Tenth Commandment? And it responds this way, the Tenth Commandment requireth full contentment with our own condition." with a right and charitable frame of spirit toward our neighbor and all that is his. And then it follows it up, not only with what does it require, but what does it forbid? What is forbidden in the 10th commandment? The 10th commandment forbids all discontentment with our own estate, envying or grieving at the good of our neighbor and all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. And then in an updated Fashion, the New City Catechism responds to the 10th commandment this way. It says, 10th, that we are not envying anyone else or resenting what God has given them or what God has given us. This issue of covetousness is the subject of Micah's second chapter as he addresses the problem that prompted the judgment from God that would soon be coming to Israel and Judah. And as we look at this passage today, we're going to consider several consequences of covetousness, at least as Micah reveals them. So if you have your Bibles and want to turn to Micah chapter 2, uh, we'll be in that. If you want to look in, in uh, the Pew Bible, you can. But if last week we were looking at judgment for injustice against God because of idolatry, this week could be judgment for injustice against others because of covetousness and the way that the people of Israel we're acting on that. And I think one of the first things that Micah reveals to us is that covetousness consumes. Covetousness consumes. It eats up who we are. It eats up our mental space. It eats up our time and energy. And as he presents here, it eats up our sleep. Look at what it says in Micah chapter 2, verse 1. What sorrow awaits you who lie awake at night thinking up evil plans? You rise at dawn and hurry to carry them out simply because you have the power to do so. Sleepless nights have been on our 
you know, in the conversation around our din dinner table lately, there are times when I just can't sleep. I'll wake up 2, 3 o'clock in the morning and I can't get back to sleep. Sometimes I'm, I'm thinking about something. Sometimes I'm worrying about something. Sometimes I'm thinking about a sermon. Sometimes I'm thinking about some of you guys and, and just there's concern, whatever. But sometimes sleeplessness happens. And here it seems like the people of Israel and Judah we're staying awake at night trying to think about how they can get ahead, how they can do something to someone else in order that they might benefit themselves. It's sort of like someone trying to find a loophole in a law that would allow them to avoid a certain tax or take advantage of a certain policy. And thinking about that can be all-consuming. And while these people may have been lying awake at night planning and scheming, they were putting all of their plans in motion in full daylight. Micah tells us in verse 1, he said, when the morning dawns, they perform it. It's not like they're hiding anything. They're out there doing whatever they're going to do, scheming, putting their evil plans together in broad daylight. Which then kind of makes me think, just because we can do something, just because we can acquire something, maybe God has given us the means, but maybe it doesn't mean that we should do that. It doesn't mean we should acquire it. And for these guys, covetousness consumed them. And as a result, Micah tells us secondly that covetousness could destroys. You see, there's this destructive power innate in covetousness. It makes us ungrateful. Have you ever noticed that when you want something that someone else has, the very things that you have are kind of distasteful? God, but that one's so much better. This one is, mm. it makes us jealous. It makes us green with envy. Oh, why can't I have their life, God? Covetousness seems to act like a cancer within, and it begins in one place, and it, and it moves about, infecting wholesome parts of who we are. In addition to the destructive work that it does in us, it also destroys those who are being oppressed. David Pryor in his commentary says that the word oppress, which we find in some translations in verse 2, speaks of violence. And violence is not necessarily confined to physical assault. Sometimes we like to think of oppression as being something that happens to us physically, but he, he goes on and he says that it may be dishonest scales. It may be extortion or outright show of force through the court system. The New Living Translation talks about it this way, in, beginning in Micah 2.2. It says, when you want a piece of land, you find a way to seize it. When you want someone's house, you take it by fraud and violence. You cheat a man of his property, stealing his family's inheritance. As I was reading about this, it brought me back to, a, brought to my mind a, a, another story that happened in 2 Kings. And this is a story where King Ahab looked out of his castle, out of his home, and he saw this beautiful vineyard of a guy named Naboth. And he, and he went to Naboth and he said, Naboth, you've got a beautiful vineyard. I'll be happy to pay you top dollar for it. I want to buy what is yours. And Naboth looked at him and said, look, I, I can't sell my land. God has given this to me. This is for me and my family, for our inheritance. I'm not going to sell it to you. And so the king went away dejected. The king who had everything went away dejected and depressed. And he 
moped around, and his wife was like, well, honey, I don't know if he called, she called him honey, but she said, honey, why are you so depressed? And he stuck out his bottom lip and said, I want that land, and he won't sell it to me. And she said, stop your moaning, go away. And then she went and schemed. Through a big feast, had Naboth at the end of the table and said, I want, while the middle of the feast is happening, I want you to bring some guys to stand up and make false testimony about Naboth, and then I want you to take action. So they threw a big feast. And these guys who schemed with Jezebel, Ahab's wife, bore false witness, false testimony, which is another of the Ten Commandments, bore false witness against Naboth. And the whole people took him outside of town and stoned him. Jezebel came back to his wife and said, Naboth is, I'm sorry, she came back to her husband, Ahab, and she said, Naboth's dead. His vineyard is yours. You're welcome. She schemed to take what wasn't hers so that her husband could be happy. And clearly Ahab's covetousness and Jezebel's manipulation oppressed Naboth and his family, ultimately costing Naboth his life. And while that happened long before Micah walked on the earth, it it seems like that kind of thing was still happening in Judah and Israel. And so Micah is calling it out. And I do wonder how often that happens in our context. How often do big companies and governments step in and move people under the guise of eminent domain for the good of of the community? I'm going to kick you out of here so we can build something better and nicer all while displacing people in need? Or how often might one person scheme and plan to get ahead at work and school, trampling over other people, taking a position or role that should rightly be someone else's? And Micah notes that the destruction of the oppressed, he says it gets personal. Look at verses 8 and 9. He said, yet to this very hour, my people rise against me like an enemy. You steal the shirts right off the backs of those who trusted you, making them as ragged as men, returning, them, returning from battle. You have evicted women from their pleasant homes and forever stripped their children of all that God would give them. The very people that should have been protected are now being abused, are now being oppressed, are now being taken advantage of by the powerful. And yet Micah, he reminds us that covetousness will also destroy the oppressors in judgment. In verses 4 and 5, Micah is talking about a day when the invaders will come in, when they will come and seize all the land that is owned by Israel and Judah. He says, in that day, your enemies will make fun of you by singing this song, we are finished, completely ruined. God has confiscated our land, taking it from us. He has given our fields to those who betrayed us. Others will set your boundaries then, and the Lord's people will have no say in how the land is divided. And then in verse 10, arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with grievous destruction. We are encouraged to act with justice, but ultimately God is the one who will judge and vindicate. There will be a day of reckoning. You see, for the people of Israel and Judah, that day was going to come in the form of exile. But we have to recognize that for us, there will be a day, for all of humanity, there will be a day of judgment. There will be a day when God judges the earth 
and the people therein. And so Micah has discussed this, the consuming power and the destructive result of covetousness. And then thirdly, we see that covetousness deceives. Covetousness deceives. Look at verse 6. He says, don't say such things, the people respond. Don't prophesy like that. Such disasters will never come our way. And then Micah continues, suppose a prophet full of lies would say to you, I'll preach to you the joys of wine and alcohol. That's just the kind of prophet you would like. Again, David Pryor notes, he says, the, the wealthy businessmen of the city likely did not mind listening to a preacher. And what they wanted, however, was a preacher that would endorse their way of living and their way of trading. They wanted a preacher who would say, yeah, you're doing fine. And I think sometimes we want to only listen to teachers or preachers or advisors who, are, who will tell us that what we're doing is okay. But we want to avoid the preaching and teaching and advice that meddles into our way of life. It's as though we're, they're saying, the people of Israel, maybe in our hearts, maybe we're saying, Let, let's talk about theology. Let's talk about devotions. Let's talk about the good feelings we get with God. Let's talk about prayer and worship, but let's avoid talking about things like tithing or charity or generosity or integrity or entertainment or business dealings or relationships. Let's leave all that aside. Our society would like us to think that the spiritual life is a private matter. I recently heard Mark Dever talking about that, and he said, no, our spiritual life is personal, but it certainly is not private. As God's people, we're intended to live in community, which is why we have membership. That's, we're, we're accountable. We're members of one another. That's what membership is all about. And that's what the life with Christ, with one another, is intended to, to give community with one another. We're expected to allow the word of God and the conviction of the Holy Spirit to make a difference in our lives. What happens on Sunday, what we talk about here and in, in our classes, should make a difference in our lives Monday through Saturday. What we read in our devotions in the morning or at night should impact how we live the rest of the day. In our speech, in our business dealings, in our interactions with our neighbors and friends. We may want preachers and teachers who will reinterpret the Word of God to make it say whatever seems easy in matters of sexuality, or ethics, or church participation, or fidelity. But as we see here in Micah, that's not the kind of preaching that God expects. That's not the kind of preaching that God calls people to do. That's not the kind of preaching God provides. And so finally, Micah helps us to see that covetousness is contrary to God's plan for his people. Micah 2, 7 says, Should you talk that way, O family of Israel? Will the Lord's Spirit have patience with such behavior? If you would do what is right, then you would find my words comforting. You see, in the Torah, God gave expectations for how his people should treat sojourners, how his people should treat foreigners, those who are passing through, how they should help the helpless, how they should not plow their fields all the way to the edge, how they need to leave a little bit for those who could walk by and, and glean and take some of the extras. And then the writer of Proverbs reminds us in Proverbs 3.27, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when, is, when it is in your power to do it. And in much the same way, Jesus demonstrated and taught how we should treat those who are in need. 
And yet God reminds us here that if we would only do the right thing, then God's words would be comforting. And I think whether it's this issue of covetousness or anything else we read in God's word, when there is discomfort, ultimately that comes from the fact that we are out of alignment, that we are transgressing, that we are missing the mark of God's perfect standard. God expects us to be gracious people who care for the, those in need, who don't take advantage. And so when we're out of alignment with what God would expect, that's where repentance comes in. Let me tell you about a friend of mine. We've known him for years. Danielle and I have known him since high school. And late in his high school career, early in college, he kind of came out of the closet and said that he was gay. Told everybody that he's known that for a very long time. It didn't change the fact that in high school he became a follower of Christ. In fact, Danielle was very instrumental in, in him coming to faith. So he would read the word of God and he would see, my lifestyle is not in alignment with God's word, but I know what I feel. I know what I am inside. This is who I am. Something's not right. And he just didn't fully grasp it. He said, I, I, I know we can't interpret the word of God differently, but I'm gay. And so recently, he's been involved with a church up in Pennsylvania, and he's been getting involved in some recovery programs. And God, through that recovery program, helped him to see that, no, it wasn't him who was gay. It was other people who had groomed him, who had said things to him as a child that made him think, maybe I am gay. It was people, adults, who began to take advantage of him, who began to take an interest in him that said, you might be that way. And so for years, he lived a lie. And he finally got to a place where he could say, God, I know this is wrong. He recognized it as sin. He said, God, I'm sorry. And he's making a change in his life. And it is so beautiful to see. I was so encouraged the other day when he called and Danielle and I were able to talk with him. And because it, it, it's, it, it's something in our conversations, we just couldn't get past it. And yet we wanted to be loving and encouraging to him. But he knew we were never going to endorse his lifestyle. But he needed someone. He ultimately needed his eyes opened by the, by the word of God, by the spirit of God, by the people of God with whom he could be in community with to say this is out of alignment. And so for us, I think we need to recognize that, that as Micah's bringing up the sin of covetousness, we need to recognize that it runs counter to God. And when we see it in our lives, when I see it in my life, and believe me, as I've been reading this this week, I see it all over my life. We need to confess it, and then we need to repent. We need to make changes in our lives. And thankfully, Jesus has paid for our covetousness. He has paid for all of our sin. And if you've trusted in him, he has taken your judgment, and now we get to learn to walk in a way that pleases him, in a way that is in alignment with his word. And with the help of the rest of Scripture, we can see that covetousness is ultimately countered with contentment. 
Covetousness is countered with contentment. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 10, Paul writes to this young pastor, writes to Timothy, he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Contentment. Contentment is difficult. We are bombarded with ads enticing us to acquire this or to buy that. If we were to really look closely, we would see just how gracious and loving and providing God is. We might even be able to say with the psalmist, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And even when things are difficult, I know not all of us are in the same place. But even when things are difficult, we can look with gratitude on all that God has provided. And the very least, recognize that God has given us a community, not Poolsville as a whole, maybe a little bit, but us. If we would only bear our burdens, share our burdens with one another and help us realize we are in community for a reason. And so let me close with just a couple of thoughts. We have to remember that covetousness consumes us. It ultimately destroys us and deceives us. And it is contrary to God's plan for us. But in response, we have to recognize it. We have to confess it and call it out to the Lord, maybe even to those of whom you are coveting. Maybe even say, God, I know that I have coveted. I know I'm not satisfied with your good provision." And then repent, make changes, turn around. That's what repenting is. It's going one way, realizing that that's the wrong way and making a 180 and going the other way. Ultimately, that's what we do in our relationship with Jesus Christ. When we walk into a relationship with him, we're turning our life around. But I think in our own hearts, in our own minds, even as followers of Christ, when we're getting off track, we need to do that 180 and come back. So we need to repent We need to ask God for strength to be content and be grateful for what he has given us. Augustine wrote, you've made us for yourself and our our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. I pray that we would find our rest and contentment in God alone and his good and wise provision for us. Let me just close with this little story. I know I've, I've shared part of this before. Last summer, I bought a car that I shouldn't have purchased, and some of you guys know that. And so I tried to right my wrong by selling the car, and I've been kicking myself ever since for two decisions, one for buying it and one for selling it. And it's like, ugh, every day I go, it goes over and over and in my mind. And last time when I, when I shared a bit about this, that afternoon, Danielle and I were on our way out to Ocean City to go to the Baptist Convention in Maryland, Delaware. And while we were on our way there, we were blessed. Pete came by with a car. He said, I can't use this car right now. It's for my granddaughter. It's just sitting in my driveway collecting dust. Do you want to drive it for a bit? 
And I was like, wow, what a gift from God. So yes, we have wheels. I have wheels. I little Toyota Prius. It's very efficient, 50 plus miles per gallon. It's really impressive. <laughs> but you know what's sad? I can see the hand of God in, in Pete and Jackie's gift. I can see the provision of God in that, and yet in my heart, I still covet. I still want to undo the decision that I undid. I still... So as you guys think about it, yes, Tesla. As you guys think about it, pray that my heart would, that God would heal my heart. But I think there are things in all of our lives that are a bit like that. We're just not satisfied with what God has provided. 